Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is CJ. I've got some announcements here for you this morning. Um, if you're new to the Oceanside Sanctuary, welcome. Pretty great day to be here, right? If you're here for the first time, if you're watching online, great day to be watching online with everything that's going on here. Mark, I've heard you speak twice now, and I could sit and listen to your story all day long. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate you. If you are new, there's a couple QR codes. There's going to be uh, one up on the TV here behind me, as well as in the bathrooms around throughout the, the space here this morning. So you can just scan those when you're comfortable, and that'll take you right to the page where you can let us know when you're ready that you are new to the Oceanside Sanctuary. We'd love to get to know you, and I know the staff would love to say hello. A couple key things coming up, and you'll see those on the screen coming up uh, this Thursday, I believe, which is the 31st at 6 p.m. Uh, join the Trans Family Support Services for an hour-long live stream for Transgender Day of Visibility as they cover the importance of visibility for the transgender community through an intergenerational lens. We will be joined by community members from different generations to help bring to life experiences those in the communities have had and how visibility has made those experiences both positive and negative. More information online about this Thursday night um, and certainly a link to the, uh, the Zoom meeting there. So that's gonna be um, a valuable and important thing here for our community and our members. Uh, coming up next month, um, this happens the first Thursday of every month. It's going to be April the 1st, excuse me, April 3rd, 6.30 p.m. And that's also on the Zoom, our book club, entitled, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance by Drew G. Hart. Um, in this book, Hart provides insights into scripture and history, along with illuminating personal stories to help us identify how the witness of the church has become mangled by white supremacy and religious nationalism. The book calls uh, the church to action, offering a way forward that is deeply rooted in the life and witness of Jesus. Once again, that's coming up, not this Thursday, the following Thursday, April 3rd, 6.30 p.m. The link is, of course, going to be online for you um, to be part of that. Something brand new. I was really excited when I saw this coming up. This is kind of fun. A new nature gathering. I'm guessing this is maybe Alex's idea based on some of his recent Facebook posts as he journeys around the land out in nature. Saturday, April 23rd. This looks like a lot of fun. 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Calavera Lake. So even if you don't like Alex, Calavera Lake is an amazing place. All right, so you want to see it. Saturday, April 23rd, uh, the church is hosting a new nature gathering out at the lake in Carlsbad. Being in nature is a great way to deepen your connection to the divine. Lower your blood pressure, which is true. Lessen anxiety and depression and build community. During this gathering, we'll make space for contemplation, uh, group processing, spiritual practices, solo time, and hiking at various skill levels. Alex put that in because his skill level's a 10. Mine's a one. Various skill levels, don't forget about that. So that's gonna happen Saturday, April 23rd. You can RSVP, um, link's gonna be up there, it's gonna be online, or you can just let Alex know that that is something you are interested in. It does not say dogs are welcome, but I'm guessing dogs are probably very welcome, right, Alex? 
as a dog person himself. And then finally, I know we've been up here for a while, so I'll make this last part short, but the Oceanside Sanctuary, as we talk about each week, is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on support from those of us sitting in the sanctuary and in this space here this morning. Um, you can give online, you can set that up as a monthly donation. Um, there's also, no, there's not. I was gonna say there's a box in the back, but would you guys move it around? It's disappeared. Just do it online, okay, everybody? Have a great week. Uh, so two things. First, I can attest that CJ is, in fact, a level one hiker from personal experience. <clears throat> and the second is, if you really do want to know where the giving boxes are, they're at the exit. So as you leave, you'll see a cute little box there. And if you want to pop a check or you know, cash, or maybe just like some helpful comments about how we could actually be better at what we do. That's, that's always helpful too. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jason. I'm the pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Believe it or not, we are going to wrap up our three-month series on wisdom. Today is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which means I'm going to tell you what Ecclesiastes is all about today. Your wait has been long and arduous, I know. I've had a lot of people lamenting that my sermons during the book of Ecclesiastes have not been very uplifting. And I just want to point out that that's, I didn't write it. Uh, I'm just sharing with you what I'm finding in here. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, it's also a good thing, though, when a long series is coming to a close. So I'm excited for today, and I hope you are too. Uh, I thought maybe it would be a good idea for us to just say a quick prayer before I get into what I'm supposed to do today. Sound good? All right, pray with me. God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather, to raise our voices uh, in prayer, in song, in reading passages of Scripture, to raise our voices in encouragement to each other, to raise our voices in support of our trans siblings, and to raise our voices and ask that you would help us to enlarge our faith that we would become people who are uh, deeper spiritually and wider as a community. That our sense of inclusion today would extend uh, to all kinds of people. That we would leave today unscathed by cynicism, but marked by a sense of hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know, as, as hard as I want to try to, like, end this on an upbeat note, <laughs> one of the problems in my life is that I'm on Twitter. Now, for those of you who are under the age of 40, Twitter is a social media platform. It's like Instagram, but not. It's infinitely less positive and hopeful about life. Because I'm on Twitter, I get to see things like 
Robert Foster, who was the 2019 gubernatorial candidate in Mississippi, tweeting things like this. Some of y'all still want to try and find political compromise with those that want to groom our school-aged children and pretend men are women, etc. I think they need to be lined up against a wall before a firing squad and sent to an early judgment. That is a popular candidate for governor in the United States saying that any supporters of transgendered persons ought to suffer capital punishment. This is not a one-off comment by Robert Foster, and it is not a fringe sentiment amongst a growing fanaticism by authoritarians in the United States. Now, I don't want to align Robert Foster with a particular political party because I know that there's a wide range of diversity in this room politically. But I think it probably goes without saying, if you're paying attention to the news at all, that there is a growing sense of fanaticism in the United States. People who seem to be utterly and completely and unwaveringly committed to extreme ideas about things like supporting transgendered persons. This tweet was liked thousands of times and shared hundreds of times. And I'm reminded that the psychologist Carl Jung said, fanaticism is always compensation for hidden doubts. Fanaticism is always compensation for hidden doubts. And when we suppress our doubts, when we deny that they are there, when we are afraid of our doubts, we tend to run as hard and as fast as we can in the opposite direction, and that is towards certainty, towards confidence, towards the kind of display of what we think is strength that provides us with a refuge from the terror of doubt. And I want to suggest to you today that that is what Ecclesiastes is about. That it is an extended meditation on doubt. It has been hard the last few weeks to read what's written in this book. Because there's an awful lot of doubt and skepticism and pessimism in the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, what I want to do is suggest to you that there is not one answer to the question, what is the point of life? Remember I said that's the question Ecclesiastes is asking? I said that in the book of Proverbs, which I said at the beginning of this series is sort of wisdom 101, that the book of Proverbs is asking, how do we live our lives successfully? How can we live and be happy and successful and healthy and wealthy? And the answer of the book of Proverbs is get up every day, follow the rules, be honest, work hard, and life will be good for you. And I said that that is sort of beginning wisdom. And in Proverbs, of course, it's presented as a parent teaching a child. This is what you need to do every day in order to live a good and happy life. That was in January. And then in February, things took a turn for the worse because we turned to the book of Job. 
And the book of Job, I said, is like Wisdom 201. It's a bit more advanced than Proverbs because the book of Job recognizes that you might get up every day and follow the rules and work hard and tell the truth and still end up miserable and suffering and struggling and failing and poor and sick. That being good does not guarantee that your life will be good and happy and healthy and wealthy. And that, in fact, sometimes people who break the rules, who lie and cheat and steal, end up as the wealthiest folks in our world. So what's the point of being good if it doesn't guarantee a good life? I said, that's the question Job asked. There's a kind of disillusionment with following the rules because it doesn't work for everybody. And I said the answer in Job to that was, well, we had to look at the bigger picture. We had to recognize the beauty and the complexity of life, that God shows Job a vision that reveals to Job that life is not all about Job and Job's circumstances. And that's kind of a tough pill to swallow. And then I said that the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with many of the same questions and asks, well, I've zoomed out on life and I've noticed that it doesn't matter how hard I work or how many great things I do, it doesn't matter if I'm wise or foolish because I'm going to end up dying just like the fool. So what's the point of life? Why do we do this thing? It's been difficult because we've encountered some, like I said, fairly depressing answers to that question. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that one of the voices in the book of Ecclesiastes is what I'll call the pessimistic Solomon. And maybe you've noticed this over the past few weeks. Solomon chapter 1 verse 1 says, Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. And I told you that that word that is translated more often as vanity is this Hebrew word havel or habel, which sort of means the breath that we exhale. Now, all of life is like that little wispy bit of breath that we exhale after we've breathed something in, that it's, <sighs> Havel is a kind of like Hebrew onomatopoeia, which represents that sound that you make when you blow out. And that captures life. It doesn't last for very long. It doesn't seem to have much of an impact. This is Solomon at his most pessimistic. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says even more pointedly, so I hated life for all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. We find the sentiment throughout the book from start to finish. This could be summarized as that famous bumper sticker from the 1980s, life sucks, then you die. The pessimistic Solomon is disillusioned with life. But here's the important part. He's disillusioned with life, but he finds refuge in the brutal honesty exemplified by Job. You may not like the pessimistic Solomon, but I don't think you should judge him because he finds refuge in brutal honesty. That is the honesty exemplified by Job when he refuses to be consoled by his friends who say, you must have done something wrong, otherwise these things wouldn't be happening to you. And Job says, no, it's not my fault. 
Life just sucks for me right now. If you have ever been in a place where you were suffering for no reason, no fault of your own, then you also know the comfort that brutal honesty brings. It's not a bad thing. But it's also not the only voice of Solomon that we find in this book. We also, in this book, find the pietistic Solomon. We find this throughout the book, again, from start to finish, best exemplified, I think, by Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we read this last week, verses 17 and 18, where Solomon says, it is good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. Now, Solomon is talking about embracing two realities, and just before this, he says something that is fairly familiar. Do not be too righteous, and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And do not be too wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other, for the one who fears God shall succeed with both. It's the pietistic Solomon, the righteous Solomon, the religious Solomon, the spiritual Solomon. Often he talks about the difficulties of life and he concludes the best approach to life is to fear God. That is to obey God's commandments, even though you don't know what all of it is about, it's best to live in this place of religious security. This is not a kind of naive return to the wisdom of Proverbs. The wisdom of Proverbs, of course, is naive. It is childish. It is to believe that as long as you try really hard, that God will bless you. That's perfectly fine if you're five years old or maybe 10 years old. But if you are 15 years old or 30 years old or 50 years old and you still believe that with confidence that if you just do what's right, then everything will turn out okay, then you are probably not a safe person to be around. Instead, Solomon says, no, no, don't be too religious. Don't be too stupid. Because both will kill you. Instead, fear God, respect God, honor God, obey God, and things will generally be okay. This is the pietistic Solomon who retains that brutal honesty of Job, but finds refuge in the rhythms and structures of meaning offered by religion. And that's good too. It's good to find refuge in the meaning and, and, and structures and rhythms of religious practice. Many people do. The theologian Paul Ricoeur called this the second naivete. He said that for the life of honest, intellectually honest Christians, it, it is a life of naivete until you get to a certain age and you begin to discover that life is not as simple as you thought, that religion does not work the way you were taught when you were a child, that is far more complex than that, and you go through a period of disillusionment. 
and doubt and struggle and suffering. And then he said, some people come through that on the other side and realize that things aren't as naive as they thought they were when they were younger, but they still recognize the truth of those religious narratives. They find power and comfort and wisdom in those structures and those rhythms of life. And for those folks, they don't let go of the brutal honesty, but they embrace those rhythms and stories and narratives as a place of comfort and meaning. He called that a second naivete, a kind of intentional choice to live faithfully in spite of the doubts. That's also, I think, a good choice that we shouldn't judge. But it doesn't stop there. There's also what I will call the realistic Solomon, a third voice. And that third voice is, Joey will be very excited here, exemplified by Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and the timeless poem that we find there. And I, I have this up on the screen. For everything there is a season, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And you're all singing it now in your heads, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time to peace. And when I was a child and I was naive and I heard this song, I thought, why does there have to be a time for war or a time to not embrace or a time to weep? Because I thought, of course, religion and spirituality were all about making us happy and peaceful. But that is not life. I can't call this the optimistic Solomon. Because Solomon has been too indelibly marked by the brutal honesty of doubt and skepticism. But he is realistic. He realizes that life is not all good or all bad. That life is both. He continues in verse 9, What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Verse 30, or excuse me, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves for as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. 
Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. The realistic Solomon has come to the conclusion, not that life is entirely unjust, not that life can be run from or escaped from, but rather that all of life is a gift. All of life, good and bad, is a gift. The realistic Solomon accepts the brutal honesty of Job, but finds refuge in the goodness of life wherever it can be found. Whether it's in my work, or in my play, or in my family, or in the rhythms of my religious practices, or in a glass of wine that I might enjoy three or four times a week, or in the food that I eat, or the company that I keep, the vacations that I take, the work of justice that I give my blood and sweat and tears to and sometimes fail and sometimes succeed, all of that is good. Even when it's painful. All of life is a gift. This is, I think, a posture of embodiment. And this whole poem in chapter 3 is, I think, a meditation on learning to be mindful and present in every moment of life. Recognizing that this too shall pass, even if it's good. And that, I think, is wisdom. So these are the three Solomons, the pessimistic Solomon, the pietistic Solomon and the realistic Solomon. So which of these is right? Well, none of them. All of them. This is how the Bible works. Some of you have heard me go on about this ad nauseum, but we tend to think that the Bible is like an instruction manual that gives us the one right way to do everything, but it isn't. The Bible is like Ecclesiastes, a narrative with multiple voices. And those voices are in dialogue with each other, just like Solomon is in dialogue with himself. Isn't this how we are too? I am, on any given day, depending on the current news cycle, the pessimistic Solomon or the pietistic Solomon or the realistic Solomon. It may have to do with whatever's in the news or it might have to do with uh, a, a particularly good or bad exchange that my wife and I have together on any given day. It might have to do with the level of my blood sugar. But this is what it's like to deal with life. What is the point of life? If that's the question, then Solomon's answer is, the point of life is to live it. The point of life is to live it as best we can. Good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, however it might be. 
And this is, I think, the grown-up wisdom that we learn from Ecclesiastes. Three things that I want to suggest to you about advanced, grown-up wisdom that we see here. The first is wisdom takes responsibility for the faith that we choose. There is no Proverbs parent telling you what to believe or how to think or how to act. Past a certain age, it's up to you to make those decisions. Our responsibility as grown-ups is to choose which voice we align with and to take a stand there, right or wrong. And you might be wrong. You might decide to align yourself with the realistic Solomon and lean into that kind of life and discover at some point that that does not guarantee you happiness. You still have to choose. You either choose for yourself or somebody else will choose for you. And by the way, that is not Christianity. Despite the fact that we want to make it that way. There are entire churches, entire traditions of Christianity that are built on the idea that they will be your cosmic parent for you and tell you what to think, what to believe, how to act, what clothes to wear, what version of the Bible to buy with your embossed name on the leather cover, who to vote for, where to live, really. It turns out that this is <laughs> It turns out this is quite a profitable way to run a religion. But it's not Christianity. At best it is baptized authoritarianism. At worst At worst it's like a religious multi-level marketing scheme. And the person at the top always has a jet. <laughs> Grown-up wisdom takes responsibility for the faith that you choose. And our choice is, and this might be what Ecclesiastes is really all about, our choice is indelibly marked by doubt. We have to be honest about the real doubts that we experience in life. If we don't, then we tip over into the realm of fanaticism. The founder of my previous denomination liked to say, never trust a leader without a limp. This was his commentary on Genesis chapter 32. You know the story. Jacob has a vision. A ladder comes down from heaven. Down comes the angel of the Lord. In most traditions, in the Hebrew tradition, that's God. God comes down the ladder. Jacob wrestles with God all night long in order to get his blessing. God finally relents and gives Jacob a blessing, but touches Jacob's hip, thereby wounding his hip forever. Okay, spoiler alert, that's a picture of life. We wrestle with life. We wrestle with the meaning of life. We wrestle with what it means to be good and right and true. People desiring to get a blessing out of it. And we might get that blessing, but it will wound us. And we will walk with that limp 
if we're willing to wrestle with God. That limp is doubt and skepticism. It's not a weakness. It is an indelible part of what it means to be a faithful person. And if you see somebody like me who doesn't walk with that limp, you shouldn't trust them. Extreme confidence is the most obvious fig leaf for unreckoned trauma. If you see somebody who has that kind of extreme confidence and they're a leader, you either shouldn't join that church or you shouldn't vote for them or you should kindly recommend they get therapy. Our choice is indelibly marked by doubt. And then third, that doubt. Our honesty about that doubt, our honesty about the fact that we, we can't really know for sure what's true, that there is no real certainty. That's why we call it faith. Our honesty about that leads us to the realization that because we can never be certain that we are right, we desperately need each other. And hopefully it's obvious that this brings us full circle to Trans Day of Visibility. We need people who represent different voices. We desperately need people who see God and goodness and righteousness differently than we do. We need to be surrounded by folks who say, I think you're wrong, Jason. <laughs> I think life does suck and then you die. And, and I'll just pause there to say that we have so overly fetishized conviction and certainty about religion that we have utterly excluded people who want to exist in the rhythms of religious life but cannot say that they absolutely believe. And we need them. We need every voice that God has created. That's what keeps us from tweeting ridiculous things. Like anybody who doesn't think the way I do should be lined up and shot. The sad irony of religious faith is that this can help us to become the kind of people who don't say and believe and think and do crazy things, but all too often, it's exactly the opposite. We use these narratives to create the perfect conditions for people who are ready to do violence to support their ideas. But anybody, I think, who is honest about the Bible or faith or God is ready to admit that they don't know all the answers. And they don't even know if they're right. But this is what I believe and this is where I stand. And in order for me to do that with integrity, I need you. 
I need every one of you. And I think you need each other. And in that space is where we find God. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the ways that these passages have stretched us and challenged our thinking. We thank you for an opportunity for us to come together today in spite of our differences and to lift up our trans siblings, to say that we love them, we accept them, that we need them, and that we need them to be exactly who they are, exactly the way that God made them, and that we are better because they're here. We ask that you would give us that same sense of not just tolerance, but genuine love and acceptance for everybody who walks through the door, everybody who shows up to serve a meal, for everybody who participates in a small group. For everybody who is a part of a ministry team here at the Oceanside Sanctuary, we pray that you would teach us to be genuinely loving and accepting, that we would see you when we look at each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.